Morning, everyone. We are in the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter, but before we get to that text this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. There is a story happening in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, that has an incredible amount of relevance to what we're looking at in the book of Hebrews. So as we go through the passage in Matthew 9, I want you to keep in the back of your mind through the rest of the message, it's going to point back to the story that we see in Matthew 9. So let's just get to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13, and read this story. It says, As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose up and followed him. And Jesus was reclining at the table in his house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But he heard it, and he said, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think most of us, many of us, have heard that interaction before. The calling of Matthew, who was a Jew and a tax collector and hated by everyone in all of society because he didn't just simply collect taxes, but he extorted people for more than what they owed. And he was the slum of the slums. And Jesus says two simple words to him. Follow me. And Matthew's response at that moment, his heart must have been exactly right, the Holy Spirit acting rightly in that moment, stops Matthew in his tracks, and he changes. He stands up and abandons his money-making scheme, and they go and have dinner. And Jesus doesn't have dinner with him alone, but has dinner with other tax collectors and sinners, reclining there, enjoying a meal. The Pharisees the entire time seeing exactly what's happening, probably with a notepad trying to make notes about how they can come against Jesus, and this was the best they had seen so far because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And the, and the Pharisees don't go to Jesus and say, hey, we got a problem with what you're doing. They, of course, sneakily go behind his back as many people do when they have a problem, and they don't go to the person they have a problem with, but they start gossiping. And so they go to the disciples and say, hey, man, what, what's with this leader of yours? What's he doing? That's wrong. Hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and, and the, the drudge of society. Don't you know that that brings him down and it, it taints him, it spoils him? He's just like them. Of course, being God, Jesus knows exactly what they're saying. He hears it. He understands it. He knows what the point is. And so he calls them on that and makes a very blanket statement. The people who are well, those people who feel like there is nothing wrong with them, that they are the best of the best, that they are just perfect, they don't need a physician. They don't need help. 
but the people who know that they are sinners. The people who know they are tax collectors, they extort people, they lie to people, they take advantage of people. The people who rob and steal and lie, they know when they're called on it that they have no hope in themselves, that they're caught, that they're exposed, that they're undone. And they need a Savior. They need help. They need an answer because they can't find it in themselves. Now, those who are proud, the Pharisees, they can't find it in themselves either. They just pretend like they have it all together, but they really don't. All of this plays a role in what we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 4. So you can turn there into Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to see more of the more of a familiar passage out of Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11, going all the way through verse 13. And I'm just going to read those few verses, and then we're going to go back and look at verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Now, if you remember, the entirety of chapter 4 so far has been dealing with this historical example of the children of Israel who were disobedient in the wilderness and spent 40 years wandering, complaining, whining, and fussing about how tough life is going into the promised land, not believing God, discounting God, not believing Moses, not taking God at his word, and God brings punishment to them to the point where they do not enter into the rest of the promised land. They do not get to fulfill and see and experience for themselves the promise that God made Abraham. Their children did, and their children's children did, but they were judged for that disobedience and distrust of God, and they did not enter into the rest. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us from that historical example, let's not be like them. Let's not be disobedient and disbelieving, but let us take God at his word and trust in him and follow him no matter what life circumstances look like. Let us enter into the rest, whether that be heaven itself or joy and peace here and now. We can enter into the rest of relief from our sin and shame and sickness. And so the author again in verse 11 of chapter 4 says... Let us therefore, in conclusion to everything that we've seen so far, let us, as God's people, His church, strive to enter into that rest. Long ago, when I first became a Christian, I've said this before, I would go out witnessing with my friends who also became Christians at the same time I did. We were so zealous and excited for God that we... (laughs) We made very silly mistakes in Christian life. One of them was going and witnessing on the streets. 
And you might say, oh, Tim, how can you make a mistake witnessing on the street? That's incredibly courageous. I could never do that. How did you have the courage to do it? Well, we had a, we had like a little program. We would start the conversation by saying to people on the street, do you have life insurance? And mind you, I was 20 years old, okay? I'm coming up to them, grown adults with families and kids. Do you have life insurance? Right away, that probably is like very cultish. Like, what? And I'm, you know, jeans, T-shirts, whatever it is. Do you have life insurance? And some of them would say, yeah. And some of them would say, no. And then I'd follow that up. And then my buddy would follow it up and say, do you have fire insurance? Fire insurance? I didn't know there was such a thing as, like, technically fire insurance. And they would always look puzzled and confused, and they would say, no. And we'd go, then we've got a message for you. It's about Jesus Christ. He can save you from the fires of hell and bring you into eternity and live forever. That is everything you should not do in witnessing. Because we would follow it up, and we, to my shame... There were times where people would be convinced, all right, I need Jesus because I don't want the fires of hell and I want to live forever. And I'd say, and they'd say, well, what do you have to do? And I said, all you have to do is say uh, the sinner's prayer and you're fine. And so we would say the sinner's prayer, never see him again. And I would think, looking back upon those moments, did I tell them about having to bear the cross of Jesus? Did I tell them that they'd have to bear the shame of the world and ridicule the world? Did I tell them that sometimes you'd have to lay down your life? Did I tell them sometimes it is hard to live the Christian life? That it is hard sometimes to pray? It is hard sometimes to turn to God's Word and read it and meditate upon it? Did I tell them how hard it was to forgive? Did I tell them how hard it was to control your temper? Did I tell them how hard it was to make a stand with their friends? Did I tell them that living the Christian life would cost them everything that they held precious before? Did I tell them that it may rip relationships out of their family? Did I tell them that God expected of you a tithe and offering? No. I sold Christianity as an easy one-time prayer, and life is great afterwards. It's not a one-time prayer, and life is great afterwards. It is a struggle. It is a heartache. It is a painful division and stance that you make by claiming the name of Christ. You are putting yourself in opposition to the world and all of its powers, all of its hopes, all of its dreams, you now say, I reject. And you don't get to choose to live that life for a moment. It is for every breath you take. Between then and when the Lord calls you home. Anyone who says the Christian life is easy, 
It's a piece of cake. You say a prayer and you're set. You got your life and you got your fire insurance. Is lying to you. They do not know the cost of discipleship. And that cost is made every single day. You die to yourself and you live to God. You put away your preferences for others. You forgive and you forget. Every single day, God requires of you patience, loving kindness, understanding, mercy. Things that go against our nature. Things that the world laughs at and says, you're weak if you love that and believe in that and follow that. That now becomes your badge of honor. That now becomes your joy and your pride that you live for Christ and not for yourself. That you give of your time and your resources and your talents and your money for God and his work and not for yourself first. Him first. Others first. You give up your rights, your privileges, your prerogatives for someone else's. Every single day for the rest of your life. That is what the author of Hebrews means when he says, or her, you need to strive. Strive. Work hard. Work diligently. Pursue it with effort and energy and precision and discipline and diligence. Strive! Don't think for one second that the Christian life and loving God and loving others, you're in the passenger seat just going along for it and you can take a nap and you'll eventually end up there because God is my pilot. No! You must strive. You must bear fruit and reflect the glory of Christ in all that you say, think, and do. It is not a passive life. It is not one prayer, and then you can forget it until the end. You must strive. You must work at it. You must pursue it. It must be your new hobby and passion and job. More than other hobbies, passions, and jobs. You should know more of God and his scripture than you do of sports. You should know more of God and scripture and Christ than you do about food. You should know more about God and Christ and living that Christian life more than any other pursuit you have in this life. Because every other pursuit you have in this life from sports and media and entertainment and food all go away one day. They all go away. They all perish. They all die out with the new heaven and the new earth. And all that remains is God in his glory on his throne in heaven and the angels chanting, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And you are there, either in his presence with joy and thanksgiving or in the fires of hell. Only two choices. And both are true and real and biblical. Strive to enter that rest. Strive. Strive. Now I want to make sure 
we rightly understand that striving is the action of believers, of Christians, who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who do indeed have comfort and peace and forgiveness of sins. You can't strive and work your way into heaven. You strive and work your way as a believer in his kingdom, as a disciple. Clear difference. We don't work for salvation. We strive because we are saved. We are diligent and disciplined because God has put his spirit within us, changed us and born us again. We are now citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, who do we reflect? Who do we betray? Who do we not betray? Well, I guess I could use it in both ways. Who do we reflect? Christ. And so all that we do and say must reflect Christ. And that is hard. Am I mistaken? Is it hard? Is it hard to reflect Christ? Absolutely it's hard. It's a lifelong task. You will never get to a point where you reflect him perfectly and you can go, all right, I'm retired. Now I can coast to the end. You see, the Pharisees felt they arrived and they could coast through life, judging others, taking lists of what other people do and don't do, while they themselves felt that they were completely righteous and holy and good. Matthew didn't think that. The moment Jesus cried out to him, he knew. He just said the words, follow me. And Matthew did. Those words pierced him. Those words meant something. It wasn't just follow me, I got a new restaurant I want to try out, or I want to have dinner at your place. It was follow me, surrender yourself to me, strive! Work towards it. Put effort into it. Be disciplined. Be diligent. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is not about saying a prayer. It is about living the rest of your life for God's glory, to his ends, for his purpose. And we surrender our own. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That we wouldn't give up. That we'd say, oh, it's too hard, too troublesome. That's the whole point in the story of the, the parable that Jesus says about the sower and the seed. Where the sower goes around into this property of land and sows the seed of God's gospel of the truth. And some don't hear it at all. Some are so hard that it's like hitting pavement. Others hear it and are joyful for a moment, but oh, it goes away. And others hear it and they're joyful for a moment in all the worries of life. But those that the word falls on solid, good ground, full of nutrition and life, it springs forth and produces a hundredfold of that one seed. It's striving, it's pursuing, it's diligence, it's dedication, it's hard work. And we may not always see the reward on this side of heaven. In fact, I, I dare say we see almost very little on this side of heaven. Yes, we have forgiveness and we have joy and we have a relationship with God and with one another, but I long for the day 
when the fight and the striving is done, and I hear those words, and I need you to finish the sentence, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And at that moment, the striving of pursuing the Christian life here and now is over. The fruit is done. The life has been exposed. And true rest, spiritually and physically, have now come to an end. And rest is now ours. In total. Spiritual, physical, temporal, eternal, it's all ours. But until that day, You are to strive and pursue the Christian life with every effort you have. And when you feel like you can do it no longer, you do it more and more and more. And it is not a New Year's resolution of Christianity where for three weeks out of the new year, you are diligent. It is every waking second you are diligent to the things of God to the pursuit of his glory, and to the enjoyment of that sacrificing yourself for him and for others. The Christian life is hard. But God does give us something in Hebrews that helps with the hardness. And it starts in verse 12. For the word of God, so he's making a connection here for the word of God. He's making a connection with striving and seeking and being diligent. And he now connects the word of God to it. For the word of God. What is the word of God? Plain and simple, it's scripture. It's how we've divided the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. It is the written word. It is exactly what he has said for all time and for all people. It is authoritative. It is absolutely authoritative. It's not open to your opinion. It's not open to suggestions. God does not say once in here, if you like it, you can follow it. He says, you follow it. I'm the one who determines whether or not it's right or wrong. Not you. Not by popular vote. Not if all the churches in the world destroy it and ignore it. It still is the word of God. And there is no greater authority than the Word of God to govern our hearts and life because it perfectly reveals the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. Perfectly describes Him, perfectly emulates Him, perfectly puts Him on full display. No man, no person, no religion, no authority can take that place. Spiritually and morally, we are bound to the Word of God and to none other. For the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is not just simply words written on a piece of paper, they're life. They show us, O man, what is good and right. They show us how to please God. They show us and reveal to us who God is. And they reveal to us that we are not well. 
That we are not perfect specimens of the human race that just need a little bit of tweaking. No, they tell us we are dead in our sins. Everyone dead in their sins. Dead in their trespasses. No faith, no hope, no joy, no good outlook on life outside of God and submitting and bearing the cross and carrying it every single day. It is alive. Alive. He describes what the Word of God can do. It's alive and active. It's not passive. It's not just by chance, just fancy little words you can put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a little magnet on your, uh, on your refrigerator. They're not there to be nice, cute little quotes It is there to make an impact, to do something. What does it do? It helps you strive. It tells you what you're striving for. And it tells you what you're up against. And it tells you most beautifully, most beautifully it tells you that there is one who's already done it on your behalf, for your benefit. One who has already done The perfect life, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect striving, the perfect doing, the perfect loving God and loving others, the perfect discipline. Jesus Christ. Not you, not me, but him. It tells us of him. And the reason why it is alive and active is because the one who spoke it, wrote it, and did it, is alive. God is alive. God is active. God is real. God is true. He's not dead or an imagination of someone's making. But he is who he says he is. The great I am. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who knows all and holds all. And the one who sent his own son, the physician, to fix those who were sick. It is alive and active. It is also sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, the discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think all of that is to describe how God's word cuts through all of our defenses. Cuts through it. There's not a defense, an argument, a position that we can hold independently of ourselves that God cannot just simply cut right through and say, this is what it is. I'm exposing it. God's word has that power because God's word tells us things we do not, in our human nature, want to hear. We don't want to hear that a white lie is a lie. We don't want to hear that a passing look at someone with a little bit more intense thought and dreaming of them and hoping and wondering and wishing leads to adultery in our heart. We don't want to think 
that, oh, you know what, that was just a, you know, I just told them they were an idiot real quick. You know, I mean, big deal. God says, that's wrong. We don't like to hear when we're wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm, I mean, I certainly don't like to hear it. Tim, you're wrong. Tim, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And God's word does more than that, but it certainly does have a very front and center role in telling you if you're right or wrong. You see, it just gets rid of every one of those arguments, every one of those pretensions, every one of those facades, every one of those fake things that you put up. It just simply decimates it. It splits it wide open. There's no protection from God's word. You see, God's word, the preaching of it, the teaching of it, the singing of it, the praying of it, the reading of it, the meditating of it is essential to helping you strive, strive, strive. The greatest blessing we have is the proliferation and abundance of God's Word. The most published and sold book in all of history. It's available in every language imaginable. Maybe not every, but we're getting to that. But it's available in print and in copy and in video and in audio and visual. It's it's all around you. That is a blessing. It is a curse to not have it. It is a curse to reject it. It is a curse to compromise it and change it. It is a curse to deny it. It is a curse to believe that you are above it. It is a curse for you to think your opinion supersedes the word. You will never have rest. You will never have peace. You will never have joy. As long as you judge whether or not that scripture verse is good and right for you today, you'll never have peace. It will always destroy opinion. It will always destroy other authority. It always points back to Christ. Never us. It's never about us. It's about him and how he has loved us, how he has shown us mercy, how he has displayed his truth. And when that flourishes, when that is taught and preached and loved, people become Matthews. When Jesus says, follow me, it pierces, it changes him. It makes him willing to abandon the rest of his history and say, yes, I'll follow. In fact, in verse 13, the word of God even more clearly reveals that we're not hidden, but we're naked. says it, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight that is through the penetrating, piercing, dividing, clarifying word of God. Nothing. No creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you remember the first time in Scripture that naked 
was talked about. It was the first time. It was in Genesis. The first three chapters talk about it. And the first time it was talked about that Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed. They weren't nervous. They weren't icky about it. They weren't taboo about it. They were just like, this is normal. Second time that that word occurs in Scripture in chapter 3 of Genesis. Things were a little bit different. Adam and Eve had just sinned against God. Ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. And they took a step towards that. And they fell in their sin. And they heard God piercing and penetrating and calling to them. And his word resonated with them. And the first thing they realized was what? We're naked. There's something about that that terrifies and embarrasses us immediately. And so we hide it. Why? Because we're defenseless. We are completely exposed. God's word exposes everything about you. And our first reaction is to hide. Because we don't like it. We don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. We certainly don't want to be found exposed. Physically, there's laws against it. Good laws against it. But it's the ultimate expression of trust between two people, a husband and a wife, when you're exposed like that. There's nothing to hide you, nothing to protect you, nothing to deceive others with. You are who you are. That is how penetrating and precise God's word is. And if we are going to strive towards peace, rest, comfort, joy, forgiveness, mercy, if we're to strive towards following Christ, we need to get into the habit of letting God's word expose us, of God's word penetrating and dividing our defenses and attacking our assumptions and presuppositions and attacking our fears. Let it attack. Let it divide. Let it pierce. Let it do its tough job of cutting out and carving out the sin in our lives. The pride, the arrogance, the anger, the frustration, the unforgiveness, the slander, the gossip. Let it cut it out. Let it pierce it, divide it from the healthy life, from the sin. The warning is, from this passage in Hebrews, is that those who habitually hide 
manipulate, reject, and deny Scripture are not going to have rest here or for eternity. Will we learn the lessons from those who have walked before us? Or will we assume we're different? We're better off. We know better than the Israelites. In closing, in the book of John, third chapter, right after those famous words, for God has so loved the world, he says in verse 19 through 21, the following. This is what Jesus says. He says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. No kidding, people are going to want to hide in darkness and deny the truth when the truth exposes them. No one likes that. And that's what happened. The light came into the world. Listen to verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not want to come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that by his works they have been carried out in God. We don't have to be afraid of the word. We don't have to be afraid that it scalpels the inside icky parts of us. We don't have to be hesitant that it will expose sin. We don't have to worry that it will expose pride or anger or frustration or envy or jealousy. We don't have to be afraid of that. We can welcome it. That's part of striving. If that's not part of your daily exercise with God, I would say you are in danger. It's not healthy. It's not right. It's not good to reject the physician of your soul. You will not get rest in this life. And my great fear is that if you reject it to the greater extent, you will not find rest in eternity. Because eternity is going to be all about God demonstrating the brilliant lightness of his holiness all around us. All around us will be the full, unadulterated, clear display of God's glory. We will be fully exposed, but we will be robed in the righteousness of Christ, safe and secure as if we had never sinned. But until that day comes, strive, 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 and let the Word of God do its healing, miraculous, surgical power of rooting out the sin that we love to hide so deeply from others. We cannot hide it from God. Let me close in prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And may this last song truly, truly drive us to our knees. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, wow, how uh, tough it can be sometimes to call out sin in ourselves. How easy it is for us to call out the sin in others. 
but how hard it is to admit the sin in our own lives. So, Father, we cry out for mercy. We cry out for your loving kindness to overshadow us, that you might heal us. We are like Matthew. We are like the other tax collectors and sinners. We need Jesus to recline with us and heal us. In his name, all of God's people said, amen.
Now may, may not just the name, but the person of Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. Go in peace and strive this week to surrender yourself to the Word of God. God bless everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.